Our doctor is in, and so are the doctors of Capital Health. Welcome to the all-new Health 411. Every Sunday morning at 10, Dr. Jonathan Karp, along with our respected panel of guests from Capital Health, take you on an important medical journey to help you navigate your health and the healthcare system. To reach your destination, good health. Health 411 is underwritten by Capital Health. Minds advancing medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology. 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 The Bronx.com, a proudly nominated for National Association of Broadcasters 2019, 2021, and 2022 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station, as well as the winner of the 2023 IBS College Media Award for universities under 10,000 students. We are broadcasting from the Bronx All Digital Studios on the campus of Ryder University. Welcome to Health 411. I am your host, Professor Jonathan Karp. This Health 411 program is presented by Capital Health. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the science of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand your knowledge and your perspective. Today, I'm recording with Dan Geller, our student producer, and our guest, Dr. David Drucker. Dr. Drucker is a cardiologist at Capital Health. Welcome to Health 411, Dr. Drucker. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Um, you, you are talking to a college podcast slash radio station. Um, and one question I, I like to ask uh, for any students who might listen for curiosity is you're a cardiologist. How did you, like, what was your path to cardiology? How did you find that? Yeah, it was an interesting path. Um, when I was growing up, um, I was like anybody else. I had a lot of different interests. And then when I was a teenager, my father actually got sick and he ended up with a, uh, a fairly significant uh, cancer type illness. <clears throat> so I was exposed to the medical profession really from the age of about 10 through the age of 15 uh, till he ultimately passed away from that. And it really sparked an interest in medicine for me. So when I finished high school, I went to college and, and really pursued a lot of the medical courses and, and chose to be pre-med when I was in my late sophomore year. Um, but interestingly for me, initially, I wanted to be an oncologist. I really felt that treating cancer patients would be great. I always wanted to help people out, just like the doctors helped my father. But when I went through medical school and started doing my rotations, I realized that there were other parts of medicine that really attracted me. Um, in particular, I love taking care of critically ill patients, uh, emergent problems uh, that could either quickly or relatively quickly be reversed. And so that led me to cardiology, where at that time, which was kind of in the early 90s when I was training, um, really was with the explosion of a lot of these minimally invasive procedures that now everybody sees as routine, uh, where I'm the kind of doctor, I'm an interventional cardiologist. So if you're having a heart attack, uh, they call me in the middle of the night normally to come in and use a balloon and a stent to open up your heart artery. And my profession has really uh, dramatically expanded over the last few decades where now we treat arteries in all parts of the body uh, and have expanded into the treatment of valvular heart disease. 
Okay, so so within cardiology now, your specialty is the, are the valves of the heart. Is that what you're saying? Um, both the valves as well as all the blood vessels. So I'm an interventional okay. and structural so cardiologist. And so, what so I do both the. Yeah. So back in the day, um, um, I guess I'm probably a little older than you based on you talking about training in the 90s, but not by much. Um, I remember my father um, was probably about the same age as your father. So had um, uh, some bypass surgery and he came out with a big scar that went down the middle of his sternum and went all the way over to the side. And that, you know, that was, I guess, back in those days, the, the, how they did heart surgery. Is that what people are facing nowadays? Or is that what, when you use the word minimally invasive, is that what we're sort of getting away from? Well, you know, we really live in a, a great time within uh, cardiology in particular and in medicine where things are getting more and more refined and where, uh, techniques are getting better. So for people with heart artery blockages, first of all, we do have a lot of minimally invasive stent procedures that we can do. So we have uh, procedures we can do for low risk patients that would be stable people with maybe one blockage. We also have uh, procedures we can do for higher risk patients who may not be a great candidate for open heart surgery where we can put stents in multiple vessels, and we even have support devices that can help reduce the risk of a complication during the procedure. On top of that, because you mentioned your own family's experience, our surgeons really have become so phenomenal at what they do. We're blessed at Capital Health System to have a terrific surgical team, but really throughout the country, there are now minimally invasive heart surgeries that you can have. So for instance, in the past, when people had heart surgery, they may remember a relative or a friend having a big scar on their leg where mm -hmm. somebody took a vein that they had to use for a bypass. Yes. Well, that's all done through a scope these days. Wow. So people don't leave the hospital with a big scar on their leg. They just have yeah. two little scope incisions. Wow. And they heal so much better. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget. So, so just, yeah, just the average I'm just going to enter. I'm going to step on you a little bit, and and just again convey my own thing. And somebody who might be listening, I remember when, the, when my father had that. He looked down at his leg and said, "They wrapped up my leg like a sausage," and that they just <laughs> they, and they just, literally just because he worked in the food business, the meat business, and they just sutured it in this. It looked like a sausage, um, harvesting some of his veins, exactly like he talked about. Um, and that actually was one of my fears. If I ever needed that, did I want to go through all the stuff he did? But you're saying you don't have to now, which is actually sort of cool. No, you don't have to. And, and you know, I think one of the nice parts we tell people is really across the country, the average length of stay for a person even getting open heart surgery is right around four days. Wow. You know, it used to be you were in the hospital a week, 10 days. Exactly. That's really been cut in half and people do so much better and return to work so much more frequently. Wow. So are the, do they still even have the need for those those pillows they used to give people? They used to have, they tell you, are, are, are those still used? <laughs> You're laughing. They are still used. They're, they're a lot smaller than they were before, but they still use the pillows to help people cough and breathe after. Right. So. Oh. so wait, how, I've never heard of that. What, what is the what is this pillow business about? <laughs> <laughs> so 
Um, in, still in this country, the majority of open heart surgery is done where they make an incision in the sternum. And so they cut the sternum, they do their surgery, and then the sternum is closed up at the end. And because of that, when you can imagine if you have a sternal bruise or an incision, when you try and take a deep breath, you feel discomfort. And so you don't want to take that deep breath. If you have a small pillow and you hold it against your sternum, it actually makes it a lot easier to take deep breaths. And what that does is it helps you recover. It helps you feel less short of breath. And most importantly, it actually helps you clear your lungs from any potential infection. So it really helps a person recover faster and do better. Yeah, so it's, it's a low-tech solution that I was amazed by. <laughs> uh, and my, uh, so Dan, I'll tell you somebody, watching, talking to my father after his surgery, I mean, this is many, many years ago, um, he, his, he became his favorite, his favorite toy for a long time was that, was that pillow. <laughs> That's great. And I, I think he had it until he, eventually he, pa he passed away. Um, but you, you mentioned um, candidates for, for, I guess, all kinds of heart surgery versus minimally invasive heart surgery, which we do want to talk about. What are some of the, ma the, the main things that you see in your patients that um, <laughs> qualify them for heart surgery? Quickly, and then um, we'll, we'll continue. So, so really, doctors take multiple things into account. Uh, we take the age of the patient, the presence of other medical illnesses, including things like diabetes or a previous stroke the strength of the heart muscle. And really we end up doing what's called a team approach, which is the new and really standard way, which is where the patient gets to hear all the risks and benefits from both the surgeon and the interventional cardiologist. And we make a team choice together for the best okay. outcome for the patient. Excellent. And I do want to hear more about that, but we're going to take a break for some underwriting announcements here on Health 411. You're listening to 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com, and we'll be right back. Health 411 Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on 1077 The Bronx is underwritten by Capital Health. If someone you loved was sick, how far would you go to make sure they got the best care? Your mother, your sister, your best friend, your neighbor, your son? How far would you go for doctors who will meet with you longer so they really get to know you and who collaborate across disciplines so that they can devise a plan of care that's uniquely right for you? There's no doctor too far, no care too distant, that you wouldn't go there. And for more than 100 years, so has Capital Health. From our hospitals in Trenton and Hopewell to our primary care offices all across Mercer, Bucks, and Burlington counties to right here at Ryder University, Capital Health has the team of doctors, nurses, experts, specialists, and staff that you can count on to care as much about your loved ones as you do. Because you'd go to the ends of the earth if someone you loved was sick. And so do we, Capital Health. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing medicine 107.7 the bronc and 1077thebronc.com we're recording health 411 from the digital bronc studios welcome back we're having a conversation today with dr david drucker a cardiologist from capital health medical center and dr drucker is telling us about um uh, patients, and we're going to go into some more of the techniques that are used in um, traditional open heart surgery and in minimally invasive heart surgery. And at the end of the last segment, I asked him about the kind of patients and, the, and how you make a judgment of like which surgical approach to to use. Um, and one of the things struck me, Dr. Drucker, is you mentioned 
the word, uh, one of the, the, actually one of the very first criteria you said in making the decision, you said diabetes. A lot of people think about diabetes and they say, they think of um, insulin resistance and blood sugar levels. Why, what role does that have as a cardiologist in you making a decision of how to approach a patient? Well, it really makes an enormous role when, you know, when we look at people with uh, heart disease of any kind, whether it's a valve problem or in particular an artery problem, somebody with glucose intolerance or frank diabetes, whether it's type 1 or type 2, those patients are already at elevated risk for heart and vascular disease. So we recommend aggressive treatment of their diabetes to be able to get their blood sugars under control. We screen them very aggressively to make sure they don't have any occult heart and vascular disease. And in those patients, really algorithms change a little bit because in diabetics, you really get diffuse or disease that is throughout the entire artery. So oftentimes those patients will do better depending on their anatomy with a surgical approach versus balloons and stents which treat just one spot of the blood vessel. Oh, I see. So the problem then, the issue with diabetes could be sort of a, 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 a hardening of the artery, making it less flexible and stuff like that, and something where the, the eye is useful in helping where to put the stent and stuff like that. Is that, is that correct? That is true, and, yeah. and it is. And, and the other thing is that, you know, we're really in a wonderful time of cardiology, as I had mentioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, where basically, where basically, um, in patients who uh, come to see the doctor, we have lots of fabulous data, and that data shows us who does better with what treatment. So, a diabetic, for instance, who has two or three vessel heart artery blockages, we know they do better with coronary bypass surgery in particular circumstances, especially if their heart muscle is weak. So we have what's called evidence-based or outcomes-based medicine that helps us work with the patient and guide them to the best therapy. Does artificial intelligence play a role in this? Has it snuck into interventional cardiology like it's sneaking into a lot of other professions? Not just yet. Not, not to my knowledge, at least, though I'm sure somebody <laughs> around the world is using it. Well, not, not, not that physicians or cardi cardiologists would be replaced, but in terms of making the diagnosis and generating a, a probabilistic outcome, because um, not every patient is, is so easy. There might, there, I'm sure there are patients that are sort of, sort of on the cusp of you know, making decisions kinds of stuff. And exper experience right now is, I guess, how people decide. Am I wrong? They do. You know, people decide, um, you know, essentially after they hear things, they talk to friends, they talk to family members. You know, I, I think we're in an age where there's a very intelligent healthcare consumer mm. uh, and physicians are used to talking to people and really explaining things. So, you know, again, we, we have a lot of good and bad information that's available. It's a physician's job to really explain to the best of their ability to the patient what they're dealing with and to come up as a team with the best approach to provide the lowest risk and the best long-term outcome. And I, I can see how that would be very appropriate um, 
for somebody who walks into your office or walks into the hospital for the procedure. But if somebody's having a, 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 a myocardial infarction or some sort of acute thing and they don't have, they don't have the time to make those decisions, um, how, how does it, what does an interventional radiologist do under those circumstances? Well, I hope I'm a cardiologist because that. Oh, oh sorry, sorry. I, 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 I was field. thinking about what it would look like on an, an exam, like a blocked artery on a heart. And I apologize. That interventional cardiologist. I, I apologize for that. You're well. Good catch. Good catch. Yeah. Well, you know, the, you know, patients can present with a lot of different symptoms or no symptoms when they're having a heart attack, uh -huh. but we use a lot of different things to tell us whether it's a medical emergency. So we listen to the patient's story. So we mm -hmm. listen for typical chest pain. We listen for shortness of breath, um, sweating, arm pain, things like that. And then we also look at two other things, which is their EKG, that tracing that we use to see if it indicates a heart attack. And then we have specialized blood tests, which even when other things look normal, those blood tests can tell us if a person is at risk for some urgent problem. We take those three things together and we make a clinical decision. And that's when we decide whether or not to bring them in and do an urgent uh, cardiac procedure and possibly put a stent in. So when you're doing a stent procedure, how do you know where in the body you are at, you know, at any given time? How do you know you're in the right artery? How do you know you're near the heart and not in the leg or something like that? Well, part of it is anatomy and part of it is experience. So um, you have to remember that the arteries are a big plumbing system and we have special ways to get into the artery, normally through the wrist these days. Oh. So we go in something called radial artery, all right? And in the past, we used to go through the femoral artery, which is in the groin area. Both of those blood vessels will directly connect to the blood vessel right above the heart called the aorta, which gives off all of the heart arteries. So depending on which access point we use, we actually have very flexible wires that under x-ray, we direct down to the heart from that area. And then we use our basically tactile stimuli as well as the x-ray to direct the tubes into the artery. We take a picture with an iodine-based dye and then we go ahead and do balloons and stents based on what we find. So we're able to advance the wires and put the stents into position based on those dye pictures. Oh, pretty cool. And so you're working with, there's, there's, that's what I was thinking about, the radiologist who, who's following you. You're putting the probe in. And sort of when it gets into the heart, you can sort of see it and direct it so it doesn't go, go too long. Um, and you, you bring up some in, some interesting things of, of, about some of the, these these vascular sort of techniques. Um, I can imagine. Uh, well, let me uh, let me ask the question this way: On the Capital Health website, you're known for the first transcatheter aortic valve replacement procedure. Um, and so, why don't before I ask you about that, explain in sort of the anatomy of the heart, what is the aortic valve that you're going after in this procedure? And then you can lead it up and talk about that transcatheter approach, which you were leading into and in what you were saying before. Right. So we've been talking so far about the plumbing system, right? The arteries and heart attacks and doing balloons and stents. 
This is really an extension on that. There is a non-vascular structure called the aortic valve that separates the heart from the rest of the body. That valve in most people is made up of three pieces of tissue that when your heart squeezes, the valve pops open, and when the heart relaxes, it closes. As we all age, what will happen is the valve will degenerate, and in some people will get restricted or calcified. We call that restriction stenosis. And so the medical problem we're talking about is aortic stenosis. In the past, that problem used to be only treated with surgery, where they cut into the chest and they replaced it with a new valve. Mm -hmm. But about 15 years ago, a new technique was developed where we can now use stent technology to put a brand new valve inside the old one without wow. doing open heart surgery. And that procedure is called transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Let me let me take a quick call, pause here, Dr. Drucker, for our underwriting announcements. But you've, you've just launched onto something that I find fascinating. So we're going to come back after our underwriting announcements on Health 411 and continue the conversation. You are listening to 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. Health 411 Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on 1077 The Bronx is underwritten by Capital Health. If someone you loved was sick, how far would you go to make sure they got the best care? Your mother, your sister, your best friend, your neighbor, your son? How far would you go for doctors who will meet with you longer so they really get to know you and who collaborate across disciplines so that they can devise a plan of care that's uniquely right for you? There's no doctor too far, no care too distant, that you wouldn't go there. And for more than 100 years, so has Capital Health. From our hospitals in Trenton and Hopewell, to our primary care offices all across Mercer, Bucks, and Burlington counties, to right here at Ryder University, Capital Health has the team of doctors, nurses, experts, specialists, and staff that you can count on to care as much about your loved ones as you do. Because you'd go to the ends of the earth if someone you loved was sick. And so do we, Capital Health. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. We're recording Health 411 from the Digital Bronx Studios. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp here with Dan Geller, our undergraduate student producer. And we're having a conversation with interventional cardiologist, Dr. David Drucker from Capital Health Medical Center. Dr. Drucker, at the end of the last segment, was describing us an overview of... Um, transcatheter aortic valve replacement procedure, and he was talking about putting a stent into the heart and replacing the valves. I'm old. I remember people talking about replacing valves with either valves from pigs or animals or valves grown in Petri dishes, um, but that doesn't sound like what you're doing, is it? It's a version of it. Okay. So you're absolutely right that in the past, surgeons would have to surgically replace the aortic valve. And in young patients, they would often put in metallic valves. Mm -hmm. And those yep. people would have to be on blood thinners for the rest of their lives. In older patients, and in certain patients who couldn't take the blood thinners, they would put in uh, what are called bovine or porcine aortic valves. So there are valves made from different tissues and there were also human tissue valves that they made as well. What happened, though, over oh, time was right, that people, say. just like with the heart arteries, people started looking for a less invasive way 
to fix aortic valve stenosis. And really, this came out of the fact that there were people above the age of 70 or 80 who just weren't good surgical candidates, and there was no other way to effectively treat this. So originally, in patients who were inoperable and had no other option, doctors began to think about the idea of actually having a stent, and on the inside of the stent, there was a brand new heart valve that was sewn into place. And they were able to work with pharmaceutical and industrial companies to miniaturize this as small as they could to a point where they defined a procedure where just like we do heart angioplasty, in this case, people come to the hospital and we go through the femoral artery, so through the groin artery in about 85% of cases. And what we're able to do is put a little wire across the diseased valve. Sometimes we open it up with a balloon just to make a little room. And then we have a system where we can go up, put a stent inside the old valve. And what we do to, to help the procedure go effectively is we rapidly pace the patient to drop their blood pressure. That allows the blood pressure to be low. And when we blow the balloon up, instead of the balloon being injected out, what happens is since the blood pressure is so low, the stent opens exactly where it's supposed to open. And when the balloon gets deflated and taken out, there's a brand new heart valve that's functioning inside the old one. You talked about pacing. That procedure was originally. You, you talk, yeah. yeah, you talked about pacing the patient to lower the blood pressure, and the low blood pressure helps the stent expand where it's supposed to. Can you elaborate on that? Because I'm not really, I'm having trouble picturing it. Absolutely. So think about it this way, okay? If you have a bottle of champagne, okay, and you shake it up, and then you try and pop the cork, okay, it's going to be pretty easy to pop that cork. And when it pops, it's going to go flying out across the room, okay? If you have that same bottle of champagne and you basically let it sit there and you gently open it up, there's not going to be as much pressure behind that and the cork won't go as far, okay? The same is true for the heart. The heart is beating. Every time it beats, it generates a pressure, a normal pressure it might generate, let's say, is 150 millimeters of mercury. That's kind of a little bit high, but not too high. If I put a balloon above the heart and I start to open the balloon up so it blocks all the blood flow, there'll be 150 millimeters of pressure being developed underneath the balloon, and that balloon is going to be shot north. All right, it's going to be pushed out because there's so much pressure. On the other hand, if I put that same balloon in place and before I inflate it, if I pace the heart at 180 beats per minute, what happens is the blood pressure drops to about 40. So now with the blood pressure so low, when you inflate the balloon, there's almost no pressure pushing that balloon up and it stays exactly where you want it, and the stent gets put in exactly where you need it without moving. Okay, yeah, that makes a we lot do, more sense. That only for, yeah, we do that only for the time that the balloon's inflated, and it literally is 10 seconds or less, 
And as soon as we let the balloon down, we stop the pacemaker and the patient does well. Okay, so you do it with a pacemaker. It's not like a pharmacological approach or anything like that. Gotcha. That's correct. Theoretically, there are lots of do it. So you're right. You could do it pharmacologically. You could do it with other different things. But we use a, what's called a temporary pacemaker. So a, a thin wire we put up from the groin normally that helps us. And then at the end of the case, we take it out. Oh, interesting. Now, I, I'm trying to envision what if, when you put this new valve in and you have a stent in there, you have to take the stent out. What do you have to suture that valve to the heart muscle? Like, how does it, or or the old valve even? You suture, like, how does it stick in there, with with the, with the repeated pressure yeah, so of a, a heart rate over time? Yeah, so it's a great question, and and you would think, you know, wouldn't these valves move, or mm -hmm. or would they go someplace? But you have to think about what you're dealing with, and and what you're dealing with here is. You have an original valve, so the valve that's diseased is hardened. There's almost like little bits of calcium. Right, that's in the, cal the calcification okay. you talked about. When right? you put this, that's correct. And when you put this new valve inside of the old one and you open it up, the stent will actually attach to the old calcium as it's pushing everything to the side. So it anchors itself inside the old valve and doesn't move. And that's that's actually it actually holds on to the little calcium deposits to do that. That's correct. That's very oh, cool. That's interesting. So what? So just curiosity, what's the risk of dislodging um, uh, crystals of calcium or a blood clot in the while this is going on? So the risk is relatively low, depending on the uh, the transcatheter valve platform that we use, the risk of something embolizing is right around 3%. So 97% of the time it doesn't happen. And just for additional safety, what we're able to do is uh, we have something called a sentinel cerebral protection device. So in addition to doing this procedure, before we do it, we put a little tube in the wrist and what we have are these little filters <laughs> that can go up and we actually place them. They're little oh filter fishing baskets, if you will. Uh -huh. And they fit in the left carotid artery and in the innominate artery. And they basically allow us to uh, protect the patient from having any problem during the procedure. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. And I guess the filters are removed when the procedure's over. And the idea is that if one of these things are going to be dislodged, it would happen during the procedure and not after the procedure kind of stuff. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. Of course, that's not 100% true. There, there can be things that happen afterwards, but it certainly provides that extra layer of protection and really has been helpful. And it, it, for a lot of surgical procedures now that people have done, uh, the, the standard of care is getting to the point where you want the patient up and moving around as soon as possible after the procedure. Is that true for some of these heart interventions as well? Or, is, or do you want people like laying there to let things don't heal or whatever, something? No, unless there's a reason, we try and get people up and moving as soon as possible. Most of these uh, patients who get the transcatheter valves, we have them up and walking around that afternoon. So wow. most patients do pretty well with it. Um, and again, we do uh, tell them that early ambulation is a positive. 
Oh, excellent. I want to I want to hear more about this, but unfortunately, we have to take our break for our underwriting at the end of this segment. We'll be right back with Health 411. You're listening to 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. Health 411 Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on 1077 The Bronx is underwritten by Capital Health. If someone you loved was sick, how far would you go to make sure they got the best care? Your mother, your sister, your best friend, your neighbor, your son? How far would you go for doctors who will meet with you longer so they really get to know you and who collaborate across disciplines so that they can devise a plan of care that's uniquely right for you? There's no doctor too far, no care too distant, that you wouldn't go there. And for more than 100 years, so has Capital Health. From our hospitals in Trenton and Hopewell, to our primary care offices all across Mercer, Bucks, and Burlington counties, to right here at Ryder University, Capital Health has the team of doctors, nurses, experts, specialists, and staff that you can count on to care as much about your loved ones as you do. Because you'd go to the ends of the earth if someone you loved was sick. And so do we, Capital Health. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. You're listening to Health 411, and we are continuing our conversation with interventional cardiologist, Dr. David Drucker from Capital Health Medical Center, and he's telling us a little bit about um, heart surgery in general, sort of an emphasis on some of these minimally invasive aortic valve replacement techniques. Um, and we started talking about one of them called the trans uh, catheter aortic valve replacement procedure. Um, and so in what you were describing before of putting the balloon in there, um, sort of attaching a new, like a new valve to the uh, calcified the stenosis valve that's in there, what's the transcatheter part of the procedure? Is that the monitoring of where things are, or, or is it just the the thing coming up so through trans, the femoral artery? Transcatheter is just, that's exactly right. Transcatheter is meant to describe the approach of actually using a catheter to go up through an artery or an alternative approach to deliver the valve as opposed to a surgical approach, which we call SAVAR, surgical aortic valve replacement. Right, so if somebody hears that kind of word, I'm trying to sort of, sometimes if you know what the words mean, uh, I can imagine patients are not as intimidated by them or scared by them. Um, do you find, actually, do you find that too, talking to patients? Because when papers, you know, talking about, I can imagine, my father too, mentioned him. Uh, when he started talking about heart problems, people get scared. You know, and it's, um, it's part of your job sort of trying to deal with just scared patients in addition to the, the, the cardiovascular problems they may be having? Absolutely. And it's, it's really well put. And in all honesty, I think it's one of the most important uh, aspects of being a physician. I, what I tell my patients is one of the things I want them to have when they leave the office is empowerment, Right is luckily most patients are not medical emergencies. They have uh, maybe an acute exacerbation of a chronic problem. And there's a lot of fear. You start hearing you have a heart blockage or you have a valve problem or your heart muscle is weak. And so it's really the responsibility of a physician to sit with the patient, to really discuss with them in medical terms, but also in as much detail as needed to have the patient understand what is going on with their body, the problems that need to be addressed, and then to go ahead and make some decisions 
about uh, what the next best steps are. We're very blessed in cardiology that we have some wonderful medications. My non-invasive colleagues do a great job on cholesterol management and blood pressure management. We have six interventional cardiologists at Capital Health System to provide the services for heart stents and temporary pacemakers and transcatheter valves. And then we have four electrophysiologists who uh, do things like ablations and something called the left atrial appendage occluder and, and other types of procedures to help patients with all different electrical problems. So really when it comes to the patients, it can sound confusing, but most of our issues are explainable. And when patients leave the office empowered with some understanding of their problem, some of that fear is helped. Yeah, and I can imagine too, and, and this comes up in a lot of different um, things on this Health 411 program, is getting people to change their behavior is awful and difficult. So by the time you get them with the health problems, they've, they've had people talk about diet. They've had people talk about exercise. Do you find your patients who you actually do the procedure to, that's the wake-up call to change diet and exercise and you know, reduce smoking and all those other negative health factors? Does it, you're nodding. Like, do you see, is, is that the big enough event to have it happen? So what I would say to you is that luckily the majority of people who have a heart event of something or another will go ahead and change their lifestyle habits. They go to cardiac rehabilitation. They stop smoking or at least try very hard. They take their medications. They improve their diet. They go on a Mediterranean diet, which really can be very helpful in reducing your weight and your overall cardiac risk. You know, every cardiologist can tell you patients that have had problems who go back to their old lifestyle. There's always that patient who does that, but most of the patients do use it as a wake-up call. And it's one of the reasons that people are surviving heart disease, uh, I really think, better than they have in the future. Up until COVID, the life expectancy of American men and women was increasing every single few years that it was tracked. COVID put a little bit of a halt to that. But part of the reason that the trend was upward is that most men and women die from heart disease. That's still the most common cause of death mm -hmm. in the country for men and women. And because people have gotten better at taking care of themselves, doctors have gotten better at treating and knowing who not to uh, be aggressive about treating, uh, people had tended to live longer really up until COVID hit. So we're hopeful now that we've kind of hit a plateau with COVID that those trends will start again. But in cardiology, again, we're very blessed to have effective therapies, both invasive and minimally invasive, great medications, terrific colleagues, and, and patients who are, for the most part, compliant on all of these different lifestyle changes. That's very interesting. So I'm an EMT. I'm an EMT pretty locally over in uh, South Brunswick. And some of the conditions that we hear about a lot in EMT school are the AAA, the abdominal aortic aneurysm, and an aortic dissection. But they don't really go into much detail. So could you kind of explain those conditions and how, if, if, if you can, how, how you would treat that in an interventional cardiology sense? Yes. So um, those are two um, you know, important things. So an abdominal aortic aneurysm is a weakening of the blood vessel wall that causes a bulging, okay? 
most of those patients, it's not an all of a sudden uh, problem. Uh, it is the 13th leading cause of death of American males in this country, and it has a strong male predilection. So it's more common in men than women, but women do get them. Smoking is the number one risk factor. So if you've smoked under, over 100 packs of cigarettes in your lifetime, <laughs> oh, you're at risk for getting an abdominal aneurysm. And for those patients, screening is really the most important issue. What we find is that a lot of people have not been screened. And so in the case that you might be talking about, you'll have somebody who, let's say, in their 60s or 70s, who smokes a pack a day and hasn't seen a doctor or didn't get a screen, and all of a sudden they get acute abdominal pain and they pass out. Uh, and you rush to get them and their blood pressure's low and their belly is big and tense. And when you get them to the hospital, those people really have a medical emergency because that aneurysm, that bulge has actually torn. And some of them will seal and the surgeons can get them to the operating room to get fixed in plenty of time. But those patients have a very high risk of dying when they have that kind of problem. And so early presentation is very important. And most important is to get the message out for prevention, which is blood pressure control, cholesterol pills, and stop smoking, and also to be screened. If you've got a relative who's had an aneurysm, you should talk to your doctor about whether you need to be screened. And certainly if you're a smoker or if you're a man above the age of 65 who's smoked, screening is important. A dissection is a little bit different. A dissection is a medical emergency and it can occur either in the artery right above the heart called the ascending aorta or in the blood vessel that goes past the arm artery on the left called the descending aorta. That's actually when the layers of the artery tear and blood flow goes between the two layers and often can cause searing back pain. The good news is that the most common problem is what's called a type B dissection which is after the arm artery, those patients usually can be treated with blood pressure control and they normally do well with conservative care. The problems that are really worrisome is when they have what's called a type A dissection, which is where the artery right above the aortic valve, that tears, that is a life-threatening problem that almost always needs emergency open heart surgery. And those patients also you have to listen to the patient. So patients who have a congenital valve problem are at risk for that. Uh, there's other kinds of patients. Patients with something called Marfan syndrome can be at risk for that. So you see the medical emergency. The biggest thing is to know if you're an at-risk patient population, go see your doctor and get screened. Wow. Sort of a <laughs> well, thinking about these medical emergencies, unfortunately, is, is not a happy way to sort of end our conversation, Dr. Drucker, but we're going to have to do it because we are out of time. Um, this is 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. We're recording live from the Digital Bronx Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of Capital Health and Rider University's efforts to bring people together to address all issues associated with health and healthcare. 
We hope today's conversation with Dr. David Drucker um, has given you things to think about in terms of heart health and interventional cardiology. If you have questions and or comments about this program or want to make suggestions for future broadcasts, please email us at health411.edu. Thank you, Dr. Drucker. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Remember, you have a doctor's appointment scheduled for every Sunday at 10 a.m. Don't miss the all-new Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp and our expert medical guest from Capital Health. You can listen to Health 411 anytime on demand. Go to 1077thebronc.com slash health411 to listen to past episodes or tune in every Thursday at 9 a.m. to hear the weekend rewind edition of Health 411. Health 411 on 1077thebronc is underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff as well as advanced technology.